Well, let's open in a word of prayer and we'll get started. 1 Samuel chapter 17. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can continue our study through 1 Samuel and just pray that you would uh, bless our time in your word tonight, apply it to our lives, give us wisdom and the ability to discern what we're reading and studying. And Lord, we pray for those who uh, couldn't be here tonight and just pray that you would uh, watch over them. Jen is traveling again. Just pray, watch over her travels. And, and uh, we just uh, thank you for your goodness to us and your grace. And uh, we ask you to bless our time together tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're in First Samuel chapter 17. We'll see how far we get tonight, if we get make it through the whole chapter or not, but we should. Um, this is probably one of the best known in most beloved stories in the entire Bible. If you've ever sat in a Sunday school class, I guarantee you've heard about David and Goliath, right? Uh, it's, it's really embedded itself in the culture and language of nations around the world. And uh, it's a very well-known. And a lot of times it, has, it becomes a, a way of describing any conflict in which there's a uh, myth between the combatants. In other words, you know, yeah, an underdog. That's where you get the, the phrase, right? Uh, whether it's athletes or companies or nations, they will use the phrase, you know, it was a David and Goliath situation. And uh, it, it creates that image. And the story has a special appeal to, to believers because part of the the attraction is the natural support of the underdog in anything. Um, but the larger reason for its popularity is that so many identify with this situation. We can all identify with this situation. Um, sometimes we're constantly challenged by things in our lives that seem like giants, and we need the courage and the inspiration to get over those things. And that's what the story does for us. Uh, and you have David who is this shepherd boy who has this idealism and faith in God that it's just unspoiled, it's, it's untainted. Um, most people don't have that kind of faith. We all desire that kind of faith, but many of us don't have that kind of faith. Uh, but a lot of people haven't really studied this story carefully. And so that's what we want to do tonight. We want to look at some of the things that we're able to see and pull out of here. And uh, we may make it through... The whole chapter, we may not. I don't know. We'll see. But when you when you look at the the first several verses here, they give us a, a vivid illustration of really the change that's happened. Remember, we left off in chapter sixteen. It says, "So Saul was refreshed and well, and the harmful spirit departed from him." Now remember. Saul no longer has the spirit of the blessing of the spirit of God in his life. The last chapter David was not crowned king, but honored as king, selected as king, and Samuel uh, basically uh, went through the whole the whole process of acknowledging that. But at this point Saul doesn't know this. So he's still acting as king. 
but he's doing so in his flesh. He's doing so without the Spirit of God. And so we're going to see how that kind of fleshes its, itself out here. But the first thing we see in, in verse 1 through 11 here, the challenge of Goliath seemed too great to face. So let's look at these verses. It says, Now the Philistines, verse 1, gathered their armies for battle. Notice they had more than one army. They were a very great power. It says, And they were gathered at Soko, and which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah, and Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered. Interesting. When you, when you look at the original language here, when it says the Philistines were gathered, that's in what they call the active tense. Like they were gathering for a purpose. They had a reason to gather. And w- the second time that word is used a little lower down there, when it says Saul and the men of Israel were gathered, it's in what they call the passive tense. They're, they're just there. There's nobody leading them. There's no organizational structure. They're, they're really messed up. But they're gathered. They're, they're in the same spot, really. And it says, encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. Now, so you have this valley, okay, and you have the Philistines on one side of the valley. And they have an advantage because behind them is their city. <laughs> and if you're an army and you're in a war, the one thing you're going to need is what? Supplies. You're going to need food. You're going to need army. You're going to need... Well, Right behind them was their whole city. So they just, whenever they needed something, they just ran backwards and got it and came forward. Israel on the other side was on the other side of the valley. And they didn't have anything behind them. <laughs> there was nothing there. And so it's an interesting scenario when you, when you look at how they set themselves up. Why would you do this? Why would Saul do this to his men? You know, why would they gather in this place? against this great army without having any kind of uh, resources, any kind of way to get the, the, the people food and things like that. And it says, They drew up in a line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other. And there's a big valley in between. So they're both standoff, standing there, kind of like you have even over in North and South Korea, right? They stand there and they look at each other all day. Or on the border of Israel and Syria. They stand there and they look at each other all day. That's exactly what they were doing here. And it says in verse um, 4, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. So first here you see these armies. And the Philistines are ready to do battle. Israel's not. They're just kind of gathered there. The Philistines are ready to go. Uh, And instead of just engaging in a battle, what the Philistines would do is send out this guy, Goliath, their champion. That word means kind of man in between. That's why when we refer to Christ as the champion, that's what he is. He was the man that stood between us and God. He's the mediator, another way to say it. But we, we see here that the armies, we see his appearance. Uh, 
Does anybody know the tallest man in the world? His name was Robert Wado. Wadlow. He lived between 1918 and 1940. He was 8'11". All you have to do is go on the internet and look at this. I mean, 8 foot, that's like taller. Than, it's just bizarre. You look at him. And he was the tall. Well, well this was, was nothing. That was nothing compared to uh, uh, Goliath because he was about nine and a half feet tall. I mean, stop it, nine and a half feet. That's, I wanted to bring a stick and put it up, but it wouldn't fit. You know, it's, that's just really, really tall. And his appearance was just very, very intimidating. If you've ever been near a NBA player, got to go to a game with Terry one time and we were close. And I mean, you don't realize how big they are until you see them in person. Because on TV, they're all big. Even the ladies that hold the microphones and interview them, they're tall. They're probably over six foot, a lot of them. So it's like it, they don't seem that big. But when you, when you see them in person, it's like, wow, these guys are huge. Even the shortest guy on the team is pretty tall. So, you know, he, here his, his, his appearance is very intimidating. And uh, the one thing that is, is very interesting, we're going to start to see some comparisons between Saul and David and even Goliath. Remember last week when Samuel went and he went to Jesse's household. He had eight sons and tried to find the guy that was king. And the first guy he pointed out was the tallest one of the bunch, the oldest one. Oh, you know, that that must be him. And uh, the Lord said, no, that's not it. You're looking at the wrong thing. You're looking at the outward appearance. Right? And... Eliab was not the one. He was kind of refused. And that's where we go normally as, as people. We, we look at whether it's a it's leader, whether it's whatever. We look for somebody who just looks like that part. All right? We look at what we see so many times. And on the other side of that, when you stop and you think about it, as Christians, when we're facing our trials, when we're facing giants or whatever you want to call them, what do we do? We look at them, and they seem bigger than life, right? Now, I don't think, I mean, the application's here, but really, chapter 17 is about the glory of God. You know, you hear all these, these stories about David and Goliath, and, well, this means you can face giants, and, you're, you know, you need to be a David. Well, that's not what it's saying, and we're going to explore a little bit about that, because that's how it's applied many times. But you really miss the story of the glory of God if, if that's the only place you go with this. So he had this armor, and it's, it's kind of odd that he spends so much time here on this, this armor. He said in verse uh, 5, it says there that um, he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. I, I read one commentary where it says it's almost like snakeskin, but it's iron. And... and some commentators actually say, you know, he's kind of like the snake <laughs> uh, that Israel has to face here. And when you think of, of David being a kind of a prototype of Christ in the Old Testament, okay, and Christ has to crush this, the head of the serpent. I mean, it's, it's very, very similar. You can draw all these, these um, similarities. But it says, his height, he had this, 
this huge armor on. It weighed about 5,000 shekels. His armor weighed about 150 pounds. Now, if you talk to a military guy that goes into combat, usually with the sack and everything on, they carry, um, usually it starts about 75 pounds is what they're carrying. But some of them, if they have the big machine gun and there's a plate that the, the gun mounts on, you know, the plate alone, I think, is 40 pounds, 50 pounds. So they're, they're carrying upwards of, of this amount. And, and so this was just his armor. The head of his spear was probably about 18 pounds, just the, the point of the spear. Um, it says, and he had a, a bronze armor, verse 6, on his legs in a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. So he's very well equipped. He has all the modern weapons that one would need to go into battle. So he's very, very well armed, you might say. It says that uh, the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighs 600 shekels of iron, about, like I said, about 18, 15, 18 pounds, something like that, they say. And his shield bearer, so he, not, he, was, he wasn't even by himself. This huge guy had a, a shield bearer. And usually the shield bearer would bear this big shield and he would go ahead of the person he's bearing the shield for to take any arrows or whatever came their way. Huh? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, that's the scenario that's going on here. So it's very intimidating. It's intimidating for the folks here that are involved with all this. Uh, And so you look at Goliath's attitude. It says, he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, "Why why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? He's mocking them. It's like, what are you even, why are you standing over there on that other hillside? Why don't you just choose a man for yourselves, he says, and let him come down to me. And he gives him a proposal. He says, you know what? If your man is able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll, as Philistines, be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. So that was his attitude, kind of cocky, kind of, you know, and he, I mean, he's, you know, nine and a half feet tall. I mean, you know, it's not, not unfounded that he would have this kind of a, a confidence. And I, and I think that the one thing that's interesting here is that when it, when it says there, when in verse 11, you see kind of the reaction of this attitude and this armor and everything that Goliath had. It says in verse, uh, or verse 10, excuse me, and the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. In other words, he's calling them out. It's kind of like an old-time version of trash-talking. That's what he's doing. He's trying to provoke them. Give me a man that we may fight together. And look at verse 11. This is, this is unfortunately what happens here. When Saul and all Israel heard the, the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Uh, 
you know, Saul was only focused on the outward appearance of something. So this is God kind of shoving it right in his face. You know, I mean, remember at first he was a little sheepish about becoming king or whatever. But then once he got a hold of it, and you know, he didn't do too bad. I mean, he won some battles and stuff. But then he disobeyed the Lord. Why? Because he was looking at himself too much. He, was, he had so much confidence in himself and in the outward appearance of things. He had all this fancy armor probably and everything. And what happened was that was his downfall. And now you look at him in verse 11. It's like, is this even the same guy? When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Uh, and so here... God uses somebody like Goliath to really show them the danger of being intimidated or having confidence in just your own self or your own abilities or your own appearance. And so he uses this as a way to kind of bring this out and draw them out to help them understand this. Now, verse 12 Here's where David enters into the situation here. Uh, Goliath comes out every day, twice a day, trash talks. And Israel just sits there and cowers in fear. Think about it. Why did Israel want a king originally? They wanted a king other than God so that they could have a king like the other nations, right? So that that king can go to war for us, and that king can do this, and that king can defend us. And, and here, yeah, Saul and Israel, they're all gathered together, huddled, cowered in, in, in fear of what may happen because of the intimidation of this Philistines. Before, they had at least some carriage, courage, you know, to some degree, but now they're just filled with caution and they're filled with fear. And remember, the difference was the Spirit of the Lord would come upon Saul. Remember? And, and God would give him victory. It wasn't Saul doing that. The problem with him was he thought it was himself. <laughs> he didn't realize that the Spirit of the Lord had left him. He doesn't understand that. He's still thinking, okay, you know, he probably notices the difference, but I don't think he's putting two to two together here. And, you know, sometimes, even in ministry, you know, we can have a tendency to think that, oh, you know, wow, boy, I really nailed that one. Or, boy, you know, no, 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 don't even go there. That's, that's ending in a bad place. You always want to give glory to the Lord. And that's the message of this whole chapter, is that, that the Lord demands glory and he deserves glory. And when we don't do that, there's consequences. Uh, there's, there's no place to go when someone who's leading you, whether it's in battle, whether it's in a company, whether it's in a marriage, when they're filled with fear and they're paralyzed and they can't do anything. I mean, what do you do with that? You know, when you're looking to somebody lead and they're paralyzed by fear and they can't, it's, it's a very hard situation. And that's exactly what happens here. And, and sometimes, whether it's in a church, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's in whatever, that, that happens time and time again. 
Now, you get to this point and you begin to see the circumstances that, that bring David onto the, the forefront here. In verse 12, it says, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Benjamin, Benjamin and Judah named Jesse. Remember, he's the son of Jesse, who had eight sons. We know this because that's what chapter 16 said too. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul into battle. So remember, at this point, the last time we met, Samuel goes to Jesse's household. He takes a heifer saying, you know, if, if Saul catches wind of this, my neck, I'm dead. You know, I'm out hunting for his replacement as king. You think the king's just going to sit idly by? And so the Lord said, well, take a, take a heifer and say you're going to sacrifice, which he did. So he wasn't telling the whole truth, but he wasn't lying either. And so he came to Jesse's household, and he told everybody he came there for a sacrifice, and they have to go consecrate themselves. So the whole, the whole town basically goes back to their homes to wash up. And Samuel says, well, I'm going to go to Jesse's house to do my consecration. So he gets to Jesse's house, and he goes, hey, why don't you let me meet your boys? Because remember, Samuel's there to pick the king. He's there to, God's going to show him who's going to be the next king. So he sees one of the sons, the oldest one, and says, well, that, that must be him, because look at him. I mean, he's just perfect. And that's exactly what Israel thought when they saw Saul, right? They thought, wow, this Eliab guy, he's got to be the one. But he wasn't. And he goes through all the sons. And where's David at? David's out watching the sheep. He's the youngest. He's the scrawniest. He's the least likely <laughs> to fill this role as king. So they didn't even bother bringing him in from the pasture. So finally, he's done with all seven, and he's like, something's not right here. Samuel knows that it's not God's fault. So there's something wrong. Because all these seven guys... None of them is chosen by the Lord, but the Lord said, one of your sons is chosen. So do you have another son by chance, Jesse? Well, that's the kid out there in the she- you know, with the sheep. Well, we're not doing anything until you bring him here. And as soon as they brought him, remember what happened. You know, that was, that was the one. This is the one. And you could tell the brothers kind of had a little attitude. I mean, think about it. Just, I mean, if you have brothers, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to get a job or you're trying to get on a team or whatever, and, uh, you know, your brother beats you out on something. Yeah, you know, that's just sibling rivalry. Well, all seven brothers were probably looking at this thing going, really? This guy? You know, what in the world is that about? And they probably didn't even believe it. They probably thought Samuel lost his marbles, you know, because as soon as Samuel left... What did they do with David? Did they honor him as king of Israel? No, they said, get back to the sheep, boy. And they sent him back out to the pasture. And the ironic thing is, what did David do? He obeyed. A very humble individual. He wasn't caught up with, with all his, you know, I'm going to be the king and this and that. And it was many years before he actually took over officially as king. But he was consecrated as king all the way back then. And so, in verse 12, you begin to see this instruction from Jesse. Uh, the brothers, some of the brothers went with Saul to line up with the Philistines. 
and uh, David was left behind to, to tend the sheep. And remember, I, remember I said you're going to see some differences between individuals. And, and one of the differences here that we see immediately is between Saul and David. Remember what Saul was doing before he was king, when Samuel was looking for him. Remember he was out there dealing with the donkeys or whatever they were? <laughs> yeah. And he got lost. They got lost. He wasn't even a good shepherd. Okay, he wasn't, you know. And yet, and yet here you have David being faithful to his task as shepherd. He's, he, even when he leaves the sheep, we're going to find out he leaves somebody in charge of the sheep. So he takes his role as a shepherd very seriously. And yet Saul was just the opposite. He took his role as a king maybe too seriously, thinking too much about himself. And yet he didn't understand about shepherding donkeys or people or anything. And so here you have David described there back at the household. Um, Saul, the man, was already old and advanced in years. Verse 13, three of the guys go with Saul into battle. Uh, the ones who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, Abinadab, and Shammah. It says in verse 14, David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. I don't know where the other ones are. To feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And so uh, David went back and forth from Saul. So he would he would go to out to the battlefront, maybe take some resources, some food, some nutrition to his brothers, because remember they were they had a mountain behind them. They didn't have a city like the Philistines, so there was no way to, to get resources to them. So here Jesse's concerned for his sons and he sends David, the youngest, out. Hey, go back and forth and, and I want you to feed um, uh, the, the, the guys, but also you're going to take care of the sheep. So he's going back and forth. Verse 16 says, For 40 days uh, the Philistines came forward and took his stand morning and evening. So he did it twice a day for 40 days. You see an illustration here. It's not a coincidence. It's 40 days. Who else was faced? <laughs> Remember Christ? He was tempted 40 days. All right. Interesting scenario there. Verse 17. And Jesse said to David, his son, Look, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take... Ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. So he's doing this out of goodwill. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. In other words, I want to know they're still alive. They're still out there. I don't know why he wouldn't just believe David's word, but maybe, I don't know, for whatever reason, he wanted him to bring something, something back so that he could see that. And uh, you see here that in, in verse 19... So now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning. So they'd have these little squirrels probably like you have on any border. You know, they weren't in full-on war yet, but they were standoff. And, and uh, Goliath would come out in the morning and provoke them. And then he'd come out at night and provoke them before the sun went down. Forty days this is going on. I mean, can you imagine how demeaning that is? 
I mean, as a military guy, and, and Saul's not doing anything about it. You know, uh, we kind of had a taste of that a couple of years ago when in the Navy, you know, you had these crazy guys from Iran. They'd come out in their little boat, their little skiffs, and taunt our big ships. And the military did absolutely nothing. Remember, they even took some of our military men hostage at one point. And they didn't do anything. That's not the way you run a military. That's very demeaning. That, that kind of just killed the morals of, of the morale of all the guys in the military when they saw that. I mean, you know, one little push of a button and those little boats would be gone. You know, one shot and I guarantee you they wouldn't do it again. And praise the Lord, they're not doing it now either because they're, they're, they're definitely intimidated. They know better. Well, Saul's not doing anything here. And this guy's coming out. It's going on for 40 days. And it says in verse 20, David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper. Notice his responsibility. He just didn't, oh, I'm going off to war. See ya. No, he, he realized that that was his role. He, that was an important part of his duty, keeping these sheep. So he, he got somebody else to take care of him and took the provisions and he went as Jesse had commanded him. So you see the obedience of this young boy, really, who desires to do what would honor the Lord, what would glorify the Lord. You know, in that culture, they understood what it meant to be obedient. They understood that it was disgraceful. It was not glorifying the Lord if a child was disobedient to a parent. So David, you know, he remember he had... A, a heart for the Lord, a man after God's own heart. In other words, he wanted the things that God wanted. That should be our sentiment. We want the things that God wants, and we hate the things that God hates. That's, that's what that means by that. It doesn't mean that he was some supernatural giant, super spiritual guy, but he loved the Lord, and he wanted to do the right thing because he knew it was honoring his God. So he sends him out there, he, he, he obeys, he goes, and he says he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line. So whether it was in the morning, night, whatever, they, they got there and the, they're, they're lining up again and they're doing the battle cry, it says. Shouting the war cry. Now, remember, he's just a shepherd boy, right? He's... This is probably kind of exciting. It's probably, you know, it's like, you know, if I give a big fire on your block, you know, most of the people go out, oh, what's going on? You know, it's, I mean, it's horrible that somebody's house is burning down, but at the same time, it attracts people. Or if there's an accident on the freeway, people stop and they want to look. You know, it's, it's the same thing in war. Uh, I was watching a, uh, a show on, on TV called Hunting ISIS. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's a documentary on... Some of them are not even military guys, but most of them are ex-military guys from the U.S. military who a couple years ago decided, you know what, we're tired of ISIS doing what they're doing. We're going to go, since our military is not going to do anything, because <laughs> they weren't at the time, we're going to go join up with some of the rebels in Syria and do that. And so it's, it's actually documented. I mean, it's crazy what they did. 
You know, some of them, their parents didn't even know. They, one, one guy goes, yeah, I told my parents I was going to Dallas. <laughs> He's in Syria. I mean, can you imagine? These are just crazy guys. But it was, it was you know, they had that kind of warrior mentality. They, they weren't going to allow this to go on any longer. Well, here's David. He gets there, and all these guys are running to their battle stations, and he's thinking, man, what's going on? And verse 21, it says, And Israel and the Philistines drew up for the battle army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper, uh, in charge of the keeper of the baggage, and ran to the ranks and went to greet his brothers. So he was supposed to take the stuff to his brothers, but he thought, you know what? I, I'm just going to give it to this guy. He'll, he'll make sure they get it. And I, I got to go see what's going on here. So he runs right up front. And it says in verse 23, as he talked with them, behold, the champion, <laughs> the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. The only difference is this time, it says David heard them. <laughs> David was there, this scrawny little, uh, you know, shepherd boy who really didn't have a whole lot going on. Now, this isn't the first time that Israel had faced giants. I mean, Goliath was probably the biggest giant they ever faced, but... In Egypt, when they were on the verge of going into the the promised land of Canaan, in in Numbers chapter 13, Moses sent 12 spies, remember the story, ahead into Canaan to explore the land. The land flowing with milk and honey, it was called. Well, 10 of the 12 came back. You remember the story, Numbers 13. says, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. The land... We explored, devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. They're giants. And we saw the Nephilim, who were just supernatural giants. And the descendants of Anak come out from the Nephilim. And we seemed, they, remember they described themselves as grasshoppers in, in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. In other words, they were just huge giants. Two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, argued, the Lord will give it to us. Don't worry about it. doesn't matter about the size. doesn't matter about the land. The Lord said he's going to do it. But what happened? The people feared. Numbers 14. They refused to enter the land. And as a result, it says, the glory of the Lord appeared among the people, and God ended up telling Moses that he would wipe out all the Israelites and start again with Moses. But Moses spoke for the people and said, hey, you know what? Let's... Cut him some slack here. And uh, he said, all right, I'll kill everybody except Jacob and Joshua. And the way they're going to die is you're going to wander around the desert for 40 years and uh, until that whole generation is gone. How would you like to have been the guy that's holding on? (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, it's it's like, you know, you're you're the last guy that's going to die out of that generation and they can't get out of the desert until that happens. Um, and he would only give the land to the next generation. And so for 40 years, the people of Israel wandered under the, around the desert under God's judgment while this generation eventually died out. Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, the Philistines have gotten into Israeli territory. 
All right, they're on the offensive here. Uh, Verse 1 specifically tells us that they're basically in Judah. It says they're which belongs to Judah. So that's Israeli territory. They shouldn't be there. They're not supposed to be there. But they have a military dominance, and so they're, they're using it. Uh, they've undone the conquest of the land that was achieved under Joshua, if you remember back. And so it's as if they've gone back into the wilderness, back to the place where Israel was, was uh, cowed by these giants, and those giants has returned. That's why it says it's so important that Goliath of Gath, because when Joshua conquered the Anakim, those other giants, the Anakim were relocated, guess where? To Gath. So there's a direct correlation here. So Gath is Goliath's hometown. And so he was probably one of these descendants from these giants. That's why I bring all that up. But Israel had feared to enter the land because of these giants. And so they spent all this time in the desert, wandering around. And now, many years later, Goliath has taunted every Israel every morning and every evening for 40 days, it says. That's not a coincidence. Uh, It says in chapter 9, verse 2, when we looked at that, that Saul was a giant in Israel but now, without the Spirit of God in his life, he has become like Israel in the wilderness. Kind of an interesting illustration when you think about it. So there's no leadership here whatsoever. They're just gathering passively, kind of going out and doing their thing every day and maybe throwing a couple spears or whatever. But they're ill-equipped. Um, they don't have any resources And it says in verse 24, the sight of this this giant coming out basically makes them want to flee. It says, And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were very much afraid. So this is not what an army is supposed to do. They're not supposed to flee. They're supposed to fight. But that's exactly what they did because they were very intimidated by the appearance of Goliath and his attitude and his armor and all the other things we just spoke about. Verse 25, And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So if, he, if, if anybody wants to go out there and try to kill this guy, no more taxes, and you get his daughter, and you're pretty much taken care of for life. That's how fearful they were. And this isn't coming from the people, this is coming from the king. So when your king's fearful, you've got a real problem. So he's trying to figure out what to do here. Verse 26, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? So David just goes, uh, excuse me, what did he just say? (laughs) To his brothers, no doubt. And their attitude is just to criticize him. You know, they they just thought, you know, who are you? Uh, So it says, and David said to the men who stood by, what shall be done to the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. 
Verse 27, And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. And so they just said, Well, this is what the king said. Now Eliab, remember, this is David's oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And look at his response. Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, what are you doing down here? Why have you come down here, boy? And with whom have you left those few sheep that you're supposed to be watching in the wilderness? You know, he's probably pointing out, oh, you're probably irresponsible and left them. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. In other words, you're just here to spectate. You're just here to watch. You're like one of those, you know, rubberneck people on the freeway when an accident happens. You know, you just want to watch somebody else's suffering. And so they were, they were accusing him that he had, first of all, the wrong motives for being there. Why was he there, remember? He was just there because his dad told him to go there. <laughs> he was there of, a, of an act of obedience. But he was also there because it was God's providence that he was there. God knew that he would be there. God wanted him there, so he arranged it for him to be there. And as a result, he was accused for having wrong priorities, and he was attacked for having wrong motives. And when you think about it, those are, are two things. If people attack your priorities and then people attack your wrong motives, those are things you can't really... I mean, how can you question somebody's motive? You can't see what's in their heart. You don't know why they did what they did. But that happens all the time. Because we think that we know. Well, I know. They, you know, they said this, but they really meant this. Well, no. You don't know that for sure. And when you act on things like that, that's not a, a, good, a good situation. So we get to this point of the story, and he's getting all this um, criticism and they're, they're actually mocking him. Oh, those few, few sheep that you watch down there, you know, you're probably irresponsible and left them to die or whatever. They're, they're really kind of calling him out. In verse 29, David's reaction to all this, David said, what have I done now? In other words, come on, guys, what's wrong with you? You're supposed to be my brothers. Was it not but a word? In other words, I'm just asking. I'm just seeking information. I'm just here doing what dad told me to do, guys. I brought you some food. And man, you're getting all over me here. What, what's the problem? Well, remember, his brothers, Saul, the whole bunch of them, what are they? They're paralyzed by fear at this point. So they're acting in a way that is not probably normal. That's what happens when people are fearful. Uh I've been out in situations with the chaplaincy sometimes, and you're in a crisis situation. Either baby dies or something happens, and the family's upset, and you're trying to calm them down. And sometimes they call you every name in the book, just cussing at you. But you've you got to calm them down. And so you just keep steady hand, calm voice, talking to them, talk. And eventually, they kind of wear themselves out. And then an hour later, they're coming up to you in tears, saying, I'm so sorry. You know, that's fine. You know, you're, you're responding in fear. I, I get it. I mean, you're traumatized. You don't mean what you're saying. And it's a very important thing that you understand. And that's how sometimes when people respond, we have to keep that in mind, that we don't respond 
in like manner, right? Because that doesn't make it right because we're not traumatized. We're just responding because somebody's the name or whatever. That's not right. And so the Bible speaks to all that. But here, it, it's interesting because David just says, hey, you know, I'm just here to help. In verse 30, it gets to the point where he says, and he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. In other words, the brothers' kind of sentiment about David spread to the whole group. You know, So they're all like influencing the whole group, the whole crowd here against this young boy. And kind of rightfully so. Like, okay, kid, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's kind of like you're in the way. Yeah, you know, what do you have to offer? You're, 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 not, you're not doing anything here. Um, I remember sometimes growing up in, in our family, you know, the family would have to have some big meeting or whatever, and, and all the brothers and sisters would be there, and us kids, even though I was a brother, you know, I was just small. And I remember, you know, hey, get out of here. You know, you need to go out in the, go out the back and play. <laughs> well, what are you guys doing? You know, I wanted to know, but no, 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 get out of here. So, you know, it was just that, it was just that kind of a, a situation here. They were just kind of looking at David going, what do you have to offer here? But look at what, what, what David happens here when, he, when his confidence, he understands what's going on. When the words that David spoke were heard, the words back, uh, uh, all the way back there, uh, where's it at? Yeah, okay, so in verse uh, 26. What shall be done for the man who kills his Philistine, the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the names of the living God? When the, when the people started to hear David's sentiment, they, re, they repeated them before Saul. So Saul's probably thinking, hey, what's this ruckus over here? What's going on? Well, they've got this kid over here, and here's what he's saying. Verse 32, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him because of, 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 of Goliath. In other words, king, don't worry about it. David's here, the shepherd boy. God's <laughs> just under control. It's kind of comical when you think about it. And David said to Saul, you know, don't, don't worry about this. I got this. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Now, that is probably the most moronic statement that they heard yet out of David's mouth, from their perspective. They're going, yeah, right. You're going to go fight the Philistine. We got a whole army here that's cowering because we know that this Philistine could wipe us out. And you're going to go fight. But here he is before Saul. And he's, he's being brave, but he's also, he has faith in his God, right? And so he, he accepts this challenge. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And then we see the assurance here of God's power in verse 33. And Saul said to David, (laughs) this is common sense too, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him. You are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. I mean, when you stop and you, you think of that, he just says, you're not able. You're not able to do this. I mean, I hey, you know, boy, I really appreciate your your sentiment here and your 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 courage and everything, but you know, I can't let you do this. This is not a good situation. But he is really assured 
by the Lord's presence in his life. Remember, the Spirit of the Lord now is on who? It's on David. So this is coming from the Lord. This is not just this leper boy. You know, he's not like some supernatural shepherd boy. Uh, he has a confidence, but it comes from the Lord. And that's why I'm saying that the whole message here is really that God gets the, the glory here because his confidence is there because of the assurance of God's power. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, guess what? I went after him. I struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. (laughs) That's a pretty big deal. And if he arose against me, in other words, after I caught him and took it out of his mouth, if he tried to fight me, I'd just grab him by the beard and struck him and killed him. So David wasn't a, this innocent, you know, he looked, the appearance of David, he was fair-complected, red hair, just a little boyish, cutish kind of grandma. Oh, you're so cute. You know, he's got his little shepherd clothes on. He's there with all these armies with their battle gear on. You know, I mean, you know, you can see the difference here. And if you look at just the outward appearance, you're going, man, this would be suicide, kid. What are you thinking? But David goes, you know, hey, you know, let me make this appeal. Uh, you know, God has kind of given me some abilities here. I'm not, a, not as innocent as you think. I've had this ability to go out and kill uh, a lion or a bear if, it came, if I came across you, if I had to. Verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. In other words, this, this is not a, not a big deal. I have faith that God's going to do this, for he has defiled the armies of the living God. And now remember, who's he saying this to? He's saying this to Saul, the acting king of Israel. But he's, he's not doing what he should be doing right now, so the army's in disarray, everything's messed up. But here comes David, the shepherd boy, kind of set Saul straight. Look, I can do this. God's going to do this. And that's why he says in verse 37, Yahweh who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. What an amazing statement. In other words, hey, been there, done that. I've had my back up against the wall a million times. You know what? God got me out of it. He's not presuming on God. That would be wrong, right? But he's trusting in God. And that's, his faith is just so raw and so real. Saul's probably looking at him going, boy, you're crazy, but okay. All right, if you want to do this, go and, and Yahweh be with you. The Lord be with you. So in verse 38, you see here what happens. The Saul clothed David with his armor. He goes, look, you're going to go, but you're going to do it my way very important that we equip you and you know you can't go out there in this this shepherd robe <laughs> this is not good you, we got to give you some armor so he he took his own armor he put it on david the boy he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail the kind of armor that's outfitted kind of like a, a snake it's very it's steel sheets and all this stuff verse 39 and david strapped his sword over his armor But he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. 
So here's Saul saying, okay, boy, you can go out there and do this, but I, I, it, I wouldn't be doing my duty if I didn't at least give you some resources. So you're going to wear my armor, I'll give you my sword, and you go for it. Well, you know, you see the picture of Saul dressing up David in his armor, and poor little, you know, David is, you know, he can't even lift himself up. It's not going to work. He said, I can't do this. I can't go because it's not, it's not tested. I, this is not going to work for me. And so you see the, the emphasis of Saul is on what? On weapons, on armor, on all the stuff that would make David appear to be a warrior. But he's not a warrior. He's a mere shepherd boy. But he has the spirit of God upon him. And so you can't get the, uh, the, the, the armor going here. So David put them off. He just took them off. And he put back on what he was used to. Verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. Now, if you want to do an interesting kind of crazy study, just go on the internet and type in, why did David choose five smooth stones from the brook? And yet theologians go berserk with this stuff. Well, that represents five spiritual gifts that they just make stuff up out of thin air. There's, you know, to be honest, we know, as we'll find out later, that Goliath had some siblings, four of them, brothers. So maybe in his thinking, you know, he has brothers too. And if maybe somebody tried to beat up David, his brothers would chime in. Maybe that's what he, we don't know. We don't know why he chose five, so we don't even want to say that. But who knows? Maybe he was just forward thinking a little bit. And he gets this, uh, this armor off him. He puts on his shepherd outfit. He grabs his, his staff. And he says, you know what? I am, I am going to uh, deal with this now my way. Thank you, King Saul, but uh, I'm going to do it. My way. I can't go. I can't have a tested. He put him off. He took his staff, five smooth stones from the brook, put him in his shepherd's pouch, put his sling in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Now his brothers are probably standing around going, this, this kid is crazy. What is he doing? Verse 41. You see this confrontation happen. Um, and the Philistine moved forward and came near David. So they're coming down off each mountainside into the valley. They're, they're within harm's way of each other. And his shield bearer in front of him. So the Philistine, not only is he clothed in all this armor and everything, he's a huge nine and a half foot guy, but he's also got a second guy there with him. I mean, at least you think that he would have been, you know, say, you know, stand back. This, is, this looks bad. You know, I mean, two of us against this little kid. The, the, the shield bearer was in front of him. And when the Philistine, verse 42, looked and he saw David, it says he disdained him, he mocked him. It's like, what is this? For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. He looked like an innocent little child. And he's like, really? This is it? This is who you're going to send out here? You've got to be kidding me. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? 
So he's taunting David. He's, he, he really is, is trying to, to, to really, you know, just make the kid go away. Are, are you serious? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. So he was basically calling David out and saying, hey, you know what? My gods are bigger than your god. This is, this is not even an issue. And the Philistine said to David, verse 44, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Yeah, just kind of crazy, you know? I mean, it's like, wow. And all the army, everybody's watching this. Verse 45. And then David uh, said to the Philistine, and these are kind of the, the reasons that, that, that David has here for this, this confrontation. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the army, armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. So he points out to them that, you know what, I'm here in honor and for the glory of our God. It's not about me, pal. It's about the God that I represent. And you're going to find that out pretty quick. Verse 46. He says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I mean, can you imagine this? And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. So he points out, and he says, you know what, I'm doing this, first of all, to honor the name of God. Secondly, to spread the knowledge of this God. I want people to know that you don't mess with our God. And he kind of doubles down on the trash talk that Goliath gave him, and he, he kind of amps it up. He says, well, you said this, but I'm going to say this. And he makes it even kind of more infuriating at this point for for Goliath, probably like, really, dude? Are you serious about this? And he says, and that all the assembly may know that the Yahweh saves not with sword and spear. And then he says this, which is just incredible. For the battle is Yahweh's. The battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hand. So he goes and he takes on this thing. He's rebuked by the enemy. But then he basically says, hey, I'm not here. It's not about me. It's about the honor of God. I'm here to spread the knowledge of God, and I'm here to exalt the power of God. And you look at what happens. I mean, uh, verse, verse 48 here, the results. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, put it in the sling and slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. So when you stop and you look at this picture, you've got this nine and a half foot guy. Now, even if his armor bearer was seven foot, say, I don't know. I mean, just for that still gives you what? Another two and a half feet. <laughs> and if he put his hands up, he still had, you know, ample room to sling a rock over this, this silly armor bearer that's standing in front of Goliath. You know, there, there isn't a disadvantage here for Goliath being so tall. 
right? I mean, he's not hiding behind the armor bearer. I mean, he's, he's there in all his glory, ready to get hit by this rock from this little shepherd boy. And so, he says that uh, he grabbed the stone, he slung it, struck this Philistine in the, the forehead. And look at what happens. The stone sank, I love the wording here, sank into his forehead. And he fell on his face to the ground. He probably, if you stop and think about it, he probably crushed his armor bearer. Because he fell forward, obviously, on his face, right? The other guy said, hey, wait a minute, let me get out of the way. So it just came right down on him. And remember, his, his, his armor alone weighed 150 pounds. So we're not talking about a, a light tree falling over here. We're, we're talking about a pretty hefty uh, weight coming down. And it says he just fell face first on the ground. Verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistines with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. He didn't have the weaponry that Saul wanted him to have. He didn't have all the armor that Saul wanted him to have and the Goliath had. He not only had a sword, he had a javelin, he had a spear, he had all kinds of weapons. David had nothing. And then David ran and stood over the Philistine. He took the sword. Can you imagine this little shepherd boy picking up this huge sword? And, you know, it was probably pretty heavy. And you don't hear this a lot of times in Sunday school classes. It's probably maybe too graphic. I don't know. But it says he ran over, he took his sword, and he drew it out of its sheath. And he killed him and cut off his head with it. So he decapitated Goliath right there in front of everybody. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, remember, champion, that word means kind of the man man in between. That's what the word means. When they realized, whoa, (laughs) we don't don't have the, the champion out there anymore, they fled. They ran away. They were blown away by this. Verse 52, and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout about time (laughs) and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from uh, Sharaim as far as Gath and Ekron. Verse 53, and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. So they even ran back into you know beyond where they were before and they they said hey let's go get the let's go get the goods because remember they didn't have any goods they didn't have anything they were backed up against a mountain and they plundered their camp verse 54 david took the head of the philistine carried it and he brought it into jerusalem well why would he he do this he did it because the jebusites took over Jerusalem before. They were occupying Jerusalem. Israel wasn't. And so David said, I got a message for you people. (laughs) Remember that big guy out there that was helping the Philistines out? The big champion that everybody was afraid of? Well, here's his head. He probably dropped it in the main court in Jerusalem and turned around and walked out. And everybody thought, whoa, this little kid did that? We're in trouble. It was a message. 
It was of intimidation. And he put his armor in his tent. So he, he, he took his head, he took it to Jerusalem, he took the, the armor and plundered that and put it in his own tent. Verse 55, as soon as Saul, Saul David, go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the armor, Abner, whose son is this youth? Now, a lot of people say, wow, there's this controversy here. How, how would he not know? David, in the last chapter, was playing the, the liar for him and to get the evil spirit out. So this must be a, uh, an issue. You know, there must be a problem here. No. He's asking. He doesn't ask who David is. If you notice that, he says, whose son is this? Well, why does he want to know whose son it is? Because he has a promise, right? Hey, if you kill this guy, you and your family are tax-free. I need to know whose family you're attached to. That's why he's asking that. He's not asking who Saul or who David is. Saul knew who David was. And so Abner says, as your soul lives, O king, I don't know. I don't know who this kid is. He's kind of wandered in here. Verse 56, And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hands. That's before he went to Jerusalem, clearly. It's kind of just a flashback, you might say. In verse 58, And Saul said to him, who, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. And so you see this, and it's just, I mean, this whole chapter is just an amazing, amazing look at how God has provided. And when you, when you stop and you, you think about how this unfolds, a couple things come to mind I just want to share in closing with you. Because, you know, you, you might want to say, well, how does this relate to us? And when you, when you look at this, this chapter, I've heard it applied so many times. Oh, you need to go out there and be like David. And it's not saying that. It's not saying you go be David. Who is David representative of? Christ. Okay? I mean, we can no longer be like David than we can be like Christ. Okay? We're called to walk in his ways, to follow him, but we're not going to, in this life, be like him perfectly. It's not going to happen. And so what this is a, a picture of is really we're watching David do battle with Goliath. Okay? And, and we're, we're, we're the people that should be encouraged by that. We want to be like David. Okay, we were encouraged to be like Christ. But, but David is really a, a, a prototype of and a pointer to Jesus Christ. And when you stop and, and, and really ask yourself, well, okay, why would God select this little shepherd boy to represent Christ? Because he's probably the most unlikely person. And that's what the New Testament draws out, right? It's the small things. It's the weak things. It's the, the, people, the, the things that, that, that people laugh at that God uses for his glory because then he truly gets the glory. Uh, really, what happened here in the Valley of Elah with Goliath and David is a miniature version of Christ's victory. You know, Jesus 
is, is the true Adam crushing the snake when you stop and think about that. Taming the beast. Jesus is the true Israel trusting God, defeating giants, securing our inheritance for us. Uh, in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, it says that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. So Jesus faced a snake in the wilderness and he returned in the power of the Spirit to proclaim the good news of freedom to the, those who were oppressed. And so what are we called to do? When we face temptation, we're called to follow the example of Christ. Uh, we're, we're called to respond with faith rather than fear. We're to be like David. We're to resist the snake. But our ultimate hope is not in our ability to follow the example of Jesus. Only Jesus is consistently faithful. We can't be consistently faithful because we're not perfect yet. We do not follow Christ as our example. Rather, we trust in Christ, Jesus, as our Savior. That's an important thing to remember. He's the faithful one. And we are faithful in him. We're not faithful in ourselves. So this chapter is not a call to be like David, some big warrior. I'm going to go out there and fight giants. No, that's not not the purpose. It's a picture of what God has done for us on our behalf. Um, So when temptation comes for the Christian, we should seek to resist that temptation like Jesus did. But even when we succumb to the temptation, and we will, (laughs) uh, we can still look to Jesus. Because that's where we find forgiveness. That's where we find grace. So he cuts off the head. And you, you might want to say, wow, that's just an uh, incredible, incredible thing to see happen. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's a big guy. You know. Um, and, I, and I think even more important, a lot of people take this story... And they, they make it sound like you're almost... You, you, the message of the Bible is not that we are called to save the world. That's not the message of the Bible. A lot of Christians think that's what the message of the Bible is. We just got to go out there and save the whole world. And that's our... No. The message of the, the Bible is simply that we have a Savior. And we need to communicate that message to people. We're not the ones that save people. You know, so many times we get caught up in this Messiah complex. We think we're the answer to all the world's problems. Uh, The good news is that we have a David. We have a Christ that is the man that stands in between for us. And so, you know, we need to be kind of reminded of those things. John Woodhouse says this when they speak of... uh, Uh, Goliath as a champion. He says the word translated champion literally means the man of the between. And so Goliath stands between the Philistines and Israel. And that's why he says, am I not a Philistine? He embodies. Goliath embodied what Philistine manhood was. He was their true representative. And here comes David, and he becomes Israel's champion. Even though he didn't play the part. He didn't look the part. He played the part. He didn't look the part. He was their representative, their man between the true Israelite. And it's, what's interesting is this is the, the, the line that Christ 
the ultimate champion will come through. And so God has this all perfectly worked out. And, you know, we can, we can definitely um, remind ourselves that just like David, he was chosen by God to be the man in between, to defeat death, to kill it, and to give us victory. Christ is that man for us.